Fix your eyes on verses 4 and 5. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is a man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. Father, we love you. There's no one like you. You are amazing. And so we join with the Apostle Paul in chasing after you, that we might apprehend you as we have been apprehended by you. We desire that we might know you in the fullness of the resurrected power of Christ. And so, God, we pray right now that you would release an unction of your spirit in the midst of this church, that the spirit of God would rain down on every heart, that we might get a glimpse of heaven here on earth. And oh, how different we would be. Father, we thank you and we bless you in the name of Christ and the church. And amen. 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 Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Continuing our series of sermons, I've entitled Total Disclosure. Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Total Disclosure. When a handgun is sold and purchased illegally, I'm not trying to give anybody any ideas here, a common practice of a seller is to remove the serial number. The reason behind removing the serial number is to prevent the weapon from being traced back to the place and the person of origin. The illegal purchaser and seller don't want to be identified by law enforcement. Now, whenever you attempt to conceal the identity of a gun from the police, you are involved in criminal activity, behavior. Yes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You're doing something that's wrong, it's illegal. You are guilty even if you are never discovered of attempted deception. Gun laws are very strict in Delaware and Pennsylvania. Uh, in New York, asks practical Barris, the football player who had an unregistered weapon in his pocket at a nightclub and it discharged and basically not only put him in jail but ended his career. While there are serious implications legally for removing the serial number from a gun in order to conceal its identity from, of the owner in the place of its origin, there's a far more destructive crime that is occurring in Delaware and in this country every single day. The enemy of our souls from the day we are born uses this world system to erase from our minds and hearts our divine 
entity. The devil does not want you to know who you are as it relates to your connection with God. He doesn't want you to know the person who gave you your identity or the place where you can go to learn about who you are. In Psalm 127, it is fascinating to me that in verse 4 of this psalm, which is a, a couplet because if you read Psalm 128, the two go hand in hand. And 28 basically tells you the result of obedience to chapter 127 is that children are described as weapons. The Bible says like arrows in a warrior's quiver, so are children to their parents. Now, I'm not saying you need to use your child as, a, as an arrow or, or, or a gun, but it's interesting that the Lord uses the analogy of arrows to describe children. Like guns with serial numbers, every child was born with a serial number engraved in its heart, in our hearts, and the serial number that has been recorded on the tablets of our heart is you are fearfully and wonderfully made by God, your creator. The adversary's job is to steal your true identity. I was just reading uh, today in CNN where there's a court case that just concluded where two twin sons were born to a couple that separated and divorced, and the wife has decided, along with the seven-year-old child, that the child has most identified herself, himself, as a female, and the mother was petitioning the court to allow her to change the identity of the child by giving it a masculine name and potentially starting a regimen of medical uh, drug interventions. And of course, the father fought it, and uh, the conclusion of the court was not to take the side of the Bible, but a seven-year-old is not mature enough to determine for his or herself. Uh, while it's interesting that um, back in the day, that if a young girl wanted to get her ears pierced, she had to get permission from her parent, written permission, but that same 14-year-old could go into an abortion clinic without her parents' permission and have an abortion and alter her life forever. Uh, something's confused in the world. Somebody say amen. amen. Today I want to present part one of identity theft, and I'm subtitling it Stolen Identity Recovered. Stolen Identity Recovered. And we're going to come back next week. Uh, we'll come back to part two because the subject that I'm talking about 20 years ago would have been unnecessary to share from the pulpit. It was just obvious. And, uh, but today, the obvious has become a source of conflict and confusion. Uh, from the outset, I need to make a distinction between self-identification, say self-identification, 
and scriptural identification. When people speak of self-identification, they are referring to who they believe their most authentic self to be as it relates to a particular group, a gender, status, or race. The young lady who was in charge of the NAACP, uh, who was believed to be African-American, who was actually not African-American but very Jewish, uh, when she was found out on a day that the dye didn't work and the, the tanning didn't work, uh, that her parents are very Caucasian. And how, I've said this before, there's only one race, the human race. Uh, we're all different shades of dirt. And from dust we came, and to dust we're going to return. And I believe that the only reason that God made us different shades of dirt is because God is a God of diversity and variety. Aren't you glad about it? Amen. Amen. So don't tell me my wife and I are looking like each other more and more as the longer we love it now. I want my wife looking like me. Somebody say amen. Praise the Lord. And so when people are talking about, uh, speak of self-identification, they are referring to who they believe their most authentic self is as it relates to a particular group, gender, status, or race, the term itself, self-identification, implies that humans are the ones who get to make the final decision about who and what they really are. That's audacity. That's nerve. That we get the, it's, it's like uh, the car that you're driving in that is made by uh, Ford deciding for itself that it's a Chevy. Uh, that's, that makes no sense. Uh, the manufacturer <laughs> is the one who determines the, the difference. So, so, so that's, that's a self-identification. While on the other hand, spiritual identification states that the creator, God, has the first and final determination about who our most authentic self is. Now listen to the word. I'm not going to unshelf that, but listen to what Isaiah chapter 45, verses 9 through 12 says. And I'm speaking, if you say that you're a Christian, if you say that you're born again and that the Spirit of God lives in you and you say, well, uh, I can't help the way I am. This is who I am by nature. Well, now we're, we're arguing with God. And if somehow by nature you tend or turn out to be something that is contrary to God's design, Jesus said, if you were born that way, you need to be born again. Born a second time. Somebody say amen. Now, when you're born from above, here's what God says about identity. Woe to the man who fights with his creator. Does the pot argue with its maker? Does the clay dispute with him who formed it? Saying, stop. You're doing it wrong. Or the pot exclaimed, how clumsy you are, God. Woe to the baby that just being born who squalls or argues or continue, contends with his father or mother. No baby coming into the world stops and says, wait a minute. I know what the plumbing says, but let me explain something to you. Woe to the baby that just being born squalls with his father or mother. Why have you produced me? Can't you do anything right at all? 
Jehovah, the Holy One of Israel, creator says, what right have you to question what I do? Who are you to command me concerning the work of my hand? I have made the earth and created man upon it, man and women, men and women upon it. With my hands, I have stretched out the heavens and commanded all of the vast myriads of stars. God created the heavens and the earth and all that dwell therein. So for the Christian, the question is, do you believe that the Bible is the word of God? Or not. And if you don't, stop calling yourself a Christian because you're not. You may attend a Christian church. You may be religious. But Christians live under the authority of a potter's word. Am I right about it? Now, I'm not just talking about when you like what the word says. <laughs> I'm talking about the parts we don't like. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. Uh-huh. Forgive one another. Pray for that part of the Bible, too. Flee lust and fornication. That part of the Bible, too. God didn't want me to get high. He wouldn't have. No, no, no. You are the temple of God. The spirit of God dwells in you. If any man defiles the temple, all of it. So we quick to jump on people that we identify as being outside of the, the loop of the word of God. What about us? Now, why do people struggle to accept themselves and ourselves, and I have to put myself in this group. I remember as a young baseball player, one of my teammates used to call me anxious. I didn't know what the word meant, but as I got older, I understood that I was always at the game before everybody else. I, 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 every, every bat was life-threatening. It was life or death, and so I, I just had this fear of failure. And I was nervous, and my hands perspired, and uh, I, I never thought I was good enough. I was always too fat or too short or whatever. And so he gave me the term anxious. And I wish he had given me a prescription because it would have saved me a lot of stress. And so when I share that uh, in transparency, I know that a, a lot of young people and not just young people, old people, you step in the crowd and all of a sudden your palms start to perspire and your words start to run together and you can't get your thoughts right. We don't accept ourselves. We struggle with our identity. We, 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 as we're going to see, and, and I want to honor, uh, I got a lot here, got a lot here. So why do people struggle with accepting themselves? First of all, it goes back to the garden. Rebellion against God's word led to shame and self-consciousness. Poor self-esteem didn't exist before Adam and Eve disobeyed God. The Bible says the first thing that they did after their eyes were opened to darkness and closed to light, after their hearts were closed to God and opened to the enemy, they hid themselves. They covered themselves with leaves 
And the Lord said, who told you you were naked? Who told you that what I considered beautiful, who told you was ugly? And so as a result of sin, self-consciousness and shame was ushered into mankind's experience. There's no such thing as a self-conscious, anxious child. And generally speaking, unless they're teething or something like that, and they just want to get on your nerves. No, kids don't just want to get on your nerves. Yeah, praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Well, children learn that something is wrong with them, that they're different, and therefore, and so rebellion against God's word led to shame and self-consciousness. Replacing God with idols that we allow to define our value. Listen to what Romans chapter 1, verses 21 through 23 says. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful but became what? Futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. What's interesting is when people articulate who they believe their most authenticated self is, they're very intelligent and educated. That's why they sound so persuasive. But there's sanctified intelligence, and there's unsanctified intelligence. <laughs> Professing themselves as wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible into an image like, made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. What you and I idolize determine how we view ourselves and others. We bow down to the altar of human opinion, primarily through social media. If they say that you're attractive and intelligent, that attractive and intelligence means your grade point average, where you live, the size of your, your bride cup, the size of your backside, the size of your brawn, the base in your voice, how tall you are, how sharp you're. Dis you go to Africa and you're thin, you're not attractive. You go to Africa and have a stomach like mine. Oh, no, you're you fine. Right? So, so cultural relativity, where you live, what you put on a pedestal defines for us how, how valuable we are. I don't live there. I don't drive that. I don't have that amount of my, my bank account. But God doesn't measure us based on those external things. We say it all the time, man looks at the external, the temporal, but God is weighing and judging your heart. And so when you replace God with idols, your friends have more influence over what you do than God, then they are going to be the determiners of how you think of yourself, how you define yourself. Reaching the wrong conclusions about ourselves by comparing ourselves with others. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, after Paul says uh, we, uh, that our weapons are not carnal, but they're mighty in God to the pulling down the strongholds and casting out every vain imagination, every thought that comes against God, bringing under subjection every thought unto the authority of Christ. After he says that, then he says, don't compare yourself with others. Well, we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, but they measure themselves by themselves 
and compare themselves among themselves and are not wise. It's interesting, the redundancy of that, because we do it all the time. And we, we come out either looking pretty good or pretty bad. But the image that God is desiring for us to compare ourselves to is that he wants us to be conformed, to be shaped, to become like his son, Jesus Christ. That is our model. That is our aim. How do you as a wife look like Jesus? How do you as a student look like Jesus? How do you as a husband resemble Jesus? And so we, we replace God with idols. We reach the wrong conclusions by comparing ourselves with each other. We're in competition. And then here's the most challenging reason why we don't think of ourselves in the right way. Raised in homes of imperfect parents. Anybody been raised in a home with an imperfect parent? Uh, Sister Benson, no? Okay. Mm -hmm. Here's what Romans chapter 6 verse 12 says. Therefore, just as, though, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all have sinned. We were born in sin and shaped in iniquity. And so we are sinners saved by grace. And when two sinners get married and have children, they're going to produce out of our sin nature because we're not perfect imperfect children. Somebody say amen. amen. There's only one perfect parent, and that's God. But he produced two children, one named Adam and one named Eve, and they had everything that a father could ever provide for his children. They didn't even have a sin nature. They were born innocent. But in spite of God's perfection as a parent and his provisions, his children chose to disobey. And so the best parents can raise Cain's and Abel's. You can have Jacob's and Esau's, twin children, and one act like Bebe's kid, and the other one is totally surrendered to the Lord. And so the only perfect parent was God, but so, so, so the best that we can do does not necessarily guarantee that your child is going to walk with the Lord. And so that was Adam and Eve's decision to disobey God. But now while there are no perfect parents, there are good parents, good parents who absolutely try to do their best. But at our absolute best, we're not going to always make the right decisions. We're not going to always have the best, be in the best spirit. We're not going to always be able to have all of the information to draw the conclusion. I don't know how many times I done whooped a couple of my kids and they weren't even wrong. But I, I was convinced by the, by the sibling that they, they were wrong and they were always right. And so the way I handled that, I, was like, I missed some. That's why you, I had to catch up. So when, the, the spanking that you missed, let's, let's, let's attribute it to the one you just got. But I also as an imperfect parent, 
had to apologize. On many occasions to my children and our children for, for my imperfections. My imperfections. Somebody say amen. amen. And so when you're raised in a home with imperfect parents, the product is not going to be perfect. And sometimes you can say something to one child, you just, uh, uh, you, you, you need to lose a couple pounds. And for one child, that's going to motivate them to go to the gym. They're going to join the gymnastic team. They're going to lose all the weight. They're going to get cut. To another child, you say the same thing, and they're going to start using pills. They go into the depths of depression. And so we're going to see that, that children are different. And God has equipped us as parents, even in these times, to have authority and influence to produce a godly offspring. You're on the winning side if you're a parent. You're on the winning side. And the reason why we're going back to children is because this whole thing about identity starts back at home. It starts at home. It starts at home. I want you to know the devil is mad. Even right now, he doesn't want me to preach about this. I need you to pray for me. Pray for me. Now, some of you heard the story that I've shared before about the, the, the eagle who ended up in the nest uh, of a chicken coop, in the chicken coop, and he was with other eggs uh, that were chicken eggs. And, and this is, once the eggs were hatched, it was obvious to the mother chicken that the eagle was a little different. Bigger than all the other little chicklets, ate more than all the chicklets. But because it was, it, was, it was in a nest with chickens, it thought of itself as a chicken. And so it walked like a chicken. It, uh, whatever quacked, what, what do chickens do? Yeah, it chirped like a chicken and, and ate what chickens ate. And, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. But every now and again, uh, the, the eagle who thought itself as a chicken would see other eagles flying in the, in, in the sky, and something inside of the eagle would make its wings just start to flap, and it, it felt like it could fly, but then, then, then it remembered, I'm a chicken. But one day, the chicken was at a lake, and the chicken was drinking water, and it saw its reflection in the mirror of the water. And when it saw itself for what it really was, it no longer saw himself as a chicken, but it recognized that it was really created to be an eagle. And immediately, the eagle soared into the heavens. I want you to know that when you see the reflection of who you are in the mirror of the word of God, you will see who you genuinely are, and you will be like an eagle who will mount up. But until you see yourself for who you actually are in the word, you always struggle with accepting yourself. Now, where should children find their identity? In Psalm 127, verse 3, it says, Behold, children are a heritage or a gift from the Lord. I want you to underscore these words. Children are from the Lord. And the fruit of the wound is a reward. Children are from the Lord. It literally means that you, that every child is precious in God's sight because you are his possession. You originated in the mind of God. 
And he caused you to come into existence because way back in eternity past, he determined that there was a purpose for you in the earth. And so you are the possession of the Lord. You're the property of the Lord. I like the way the psalmist uh, states it in Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16. He says, for you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I pray, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was hidden, was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days are ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. God has already predetermined not only how you would look and how your, what your intellectual capabilities would be and who your parents would be. You didn't get to choose your parents. But he said, even the days of your life were predetermined by God. Before there was a you, God says, at this age, it's over. And so you are a possession of the Lord's. Children are his property. God made the original design of your identity. Listen to what the word says in in verse 26 of Genesis, way back in the beginning. God created mankind, say mankind, in his own image, in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now watch this part of it. Verse 31 says, when you get a chance, write this in your Bible. He created them in his own image and likeness, male and female. He determined that before there was an Adam and an Eve. He already determined. And we're going to see, when God told Adam to name the animals, he didn't tell him to give the animals their gender. That was already determined. Stay with me, and I'm jumping ahead of next time. But listen to this in verse 31. God saw all that he had made, including male and female in his own image, and it was very good, very good. When God finished with the model, he threw away the mold. He has no second alternative plan. There are no other options. He said, I created male and female in my own image. And when I looked at what I did, it was good. Not just good. God said it was very good. The only time God said that something wasn't good was when he, after Adam named the animals, he said it is not good that man should be alone. I will create for him. But up until now, up until the sixth day of creation and the last day of creation, God created the crown jewel of creation, and he said it is very good. I am well pleased. Well, please, we will have to stand before God and give an account to him, not to what's politically correct, not to, well, this is somebody in my family. Now, here's the the thing that I am not trying to do. The Bible says that God is angry from heaven against all sin and unrighteousness, And everyone who holds down the truth suppresses the truth. 
while God, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against sin, he loves sinners. Aren't you glad about it? When I was lost in my sin, I wasn't chasing after God. I didn't want God on my side unless God was going to agree with my sin. But he reached down and looked beyond my sin, and he drew me to himself, not because of any righteousness of my own, but by grace. But by grace, he in, in mercy. And so while God... And, and I'll make it practical. There are things that I don't agree with my children. But I love my children. I want you to know that God loves everybody. But he hates our sin and he doesn't wink at it. Somebody said the way of transgression is hard. It's hard to disobey the word of God. There are consequences because he chastens those who he loves. I believe that there are Christians who struggle with all kinds of sin, sexual addictions, drug addictions, uh, homosexuality, but they got so many different ty types of sexual identities now. I don't know, about 20. Man-made, but they're struggling with it. The Bible says, don't be deceived that people who consciously and willingly live this way will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. That's, what, that's the Bible. Let me tell you where it's at. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Galatians chapter 5, verses uh, 17, after it says that this is the walking spirit, and then it gives a description of the, the works of the flesh. Verses 17 through 23. Well, there's a section in there. Uh, you look at it. It's in the Word. Now, how does God view children? This takes us back to the analogy. It said, behold, children are what? A heritage or a gift from the Lord. I learned it from the old king. A gift from the Lord. And the fruit of the wound is what? A curse. A burden. A financial liability. Mess up my figure. Let me find a surrogate mother. The Bible says that the fruit of the womb is a reward. It doesn't matter how the child came into the world, whether married to the spouse or to the, to, the, to the biological parent or not. God said that the child, we're not going to treat a child wrong because of how they came into the world. God said a child is an, a heritage from the Lord. Even children that are born out of incest and rape, they are a gift from the Lord. Now, how they came into the world, they didn't choose to come into the world like that. Children are a sign of God's blessing. Say a sign. Whenever a farmer drove by another farmer's field and saw fruit, that meant blessing. That meant that the windows of heaven were showering. That meant that God was not withholding. And so when the Bible says that the fruit of the wound is a reward, from, from God's perspective, a child is a sign that God is blessing you. Now, not every child has a biological mother that is involved in their life. 
And so I think you can have a lot of spiritual fruit as an adult where there's adoption, where there is uh, co-parenting. And so, but the point is this, that, the, that, the, that a child is a sign of a blessing. Amen. Even when there's more than two. Amen. That was my goal. I'm going to remove six kids. My mom had nine. I'm doing six. And then the first one came. And I said, oh, God, what did I get myself into? I thought my, young, my oldest boy was demon-possessed. I just knew the boy was demon-possessed. One night, he used to have hair like this. And one night, like 3 o'clock in the morning, I see this Damien-looking, you know, Damien looking, standing at the foot of our bed. He had been put in the crib. As far as I know, he couldn't climb out of the crib. So here he is at the, the bottom of the bed, just standing there. And I put him back in the bed, and there he is again, standing at the bottom of the bed. I called his grandma and said, can you help us exercise this thing out of What I didn't know is that he had learned how to climb out of the crib, and I'm calling it demon possession. Children are a sign of blessing. Children are also a source of future blessing. He said, they are a heritage from the Lord. Through our children, our legacy lives on. This stuff is deep. You can be as mad as you. I don't know what your parents did to you. Your parents are responsible, et cetera. But if you don't get it right with them, now we're talking generations. You're taking this into your marriage. And then your children are going to take what you didn't deal with into their marriage. And so through our children, they are a heritage from the Lord. They are our legacy into the future. That's why we need to invest in them. That's why we need to fight for them. That's why we should refuse to allow the devil to have them. Children of one's youth give parents protection and provision. We always hear about parents taking care of their kids. But in the scriptures, when parents became elderly, their children didn't ship them off to the nursing home. And I'm not saying there are times when somebody needs to go because they can't get the care that they need. But the primary response was if when, when Jacob became old, his sons took care of him. Throughout the scripture, the Bible says, if a man will not take care of his own household, his own household never meant that somebody lived in a different country or in a different neighborhood. Everybody lived basically under the same roof. So when you got the, when you be, when it was, when the firstborn's blessing was passed on to you, that meant that you were responsible for the entire family. So when you're the oldest child, <laughs> you got some, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so children are our legacy. They are a heritage from the Lord. They should be a reflection of you. They should, uh, they should be an honor and a blessing to you, not an embarrassment and a disgrace because of their, because of their lifestyle. I remember, uh, 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 wow, <clears throat> let me go on. <laughs> Children are also a serious responsibility. So not only they're a source of future blessing, a sign of blessing, but they are a serious responsibility. The Bible says, train up a child. Parents, not the daycare, not the school. God, not the school. Not your cousin crack-smoking, marijuana-smoking, pornography-watching relatives. Now, I want to tell you something. I, we moved into a house already furnished, beautiful home. 
in, Christ, in Philadelphia, huge house. Didn't have to buy any furniture. I never thought anything of it. Then years later, my sons were adults. They said, Dad, that closet was filled with pornography. From the top, from the ceiling until the floor. There was a closet we said, so there are things in there they said don't mess with. Never even had to go in the closet. But my children, my boys were, were reading pornography. I, I didn't know. But the scripture says, train up a child in the way that he should go. And when he's old, our job is to, is to expose them to the things of God. You can take a horse to, the, to water. But the horse has to drink. And I got to say this. I, I know, I know. I prayed with a, a mother and her daughter, and I pleaded. I got on my knees. I said to the young lady, please don't give in to this. I know, it's, I, I, I know it makes you think you've got some power and authority over your parents, that you can stay out all night and, 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 and threaten your younger brothers and sisters, and your mother didn't put you out. There's no way to put you. But if you don't fight this, if you don't resist the devil and flee, he won't flee. And what the devil does, he will set up shop. And what you've been playing with, will, what you, the thing you've been doing is going to become the thing that is doing it to you. And that girl right now, because she played with sin, she has mental illness. And I guarantee you it's not, a, it's not hereditary, it's not biological. It was a rebellious child refusing in a Christian school, the whole nine yards refused to obey. Prayed with a beg, and, and, and she disobeyed. Let me run on. What is the responsibility of parents who are entrusted with the heritage of God, the property and possession of God? There are three things. First of all, they're right actions. Say right actions. Secondly, the right attitude. And I'm going to do the second and the third quickly. Right attitude and the right anticipation. Say right anticipation. In verse 5 it says that when, when parents are confronted from the outside, and this is, I, I believe when parents are elderly and can't defend themselves, what the scripture says, what, this is your anticipation. This is the anticipation. You will, you will overthrow your enemies. You will have victory inside your home when you raise your children right and outside of your home. So anticipate victory. You will not be overcome by your bills. You will not be overcome by the pressures that are trying to get in your house now that you can't do things that you formerly did because of your children. That's what verse 5 says, the part B of it. And then he says, blessed is the man whose quiver is full. The right attitude is there are men who don't want to have children. There are men who really believe that Children are the responsibility of the woman, and they, the, you can cry, the baby can do thomas all, uh, thumb, whatever, uh, yeah, hmm, all of that. <laughs> and the man will just walk right by, because that's the woman. No, 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 God didn't say that. In fact, most of the obligation responsibilities of raising kids, God starts with the father. The father. Yes, he does. Now, what the lie we believe is all we need to do to be a good father is to work outside the home and bring the money. Nah. So, so the right attitude is whose quiver is full. Now, every warrior didn't have the same size quiver. If you're stationed there, you can have a big one with a lot of arrows. 
But if you you ambulatory and you you have to be agile and flexible, you're not gonna have no a quiver or a case for a whole lot. So whatever size quiver God gave you. If God intends for you to have seven in your quiver or two or just one, blessed is the man. You should, you're blessed because the quiver, based on what God has predetermined, for how, your, the decision about how many children you make should start with God. Not with what society is saying. All right, now let's, let, me, let, let me run through this. What are your responsibilities? We're going to go a little bit over, and hopefully that clock doesn't chime in. Anything, but anyway, he says 85% of a child's personality is formed by age five. And children and adults go through four stages of intellectual development, and the fourth stage starts between 11 and 12. Something happens to our children between the ages of 11 and 12. And that's where they are able to, they start interpreting what they were taught from ages 1 through 10, from the voice and the, and the concepts of those where peers become more important. And so now what you told them is going to be interpreted through the eyes of people outside of your home, and then they will make a decision based on what is more valuable to them. And so all of a sudden, my sons and my daughters who were, had all kinds of friends, uh, Chinese, uh, you know, uh, uh, whatever. And now all of a sudden, they only hang out with one group of people, all African-American. What happened? At age 11 and 12, just watch it. So our children begin to interpret their life experiences for themselves through the people that they associate with. The Bible says that corrupt friends don't do what? Corrupt morals. You need to be very careful about who you allow your children to be exposed to. So, so, so the first thing, here's, here's what your responsibility as parents are. Are you ready? Hey, thank you, brother. Amen. Preparation is needed. A warrior has to be trained to succeed. Why does God call parents warriors? Because raising kids is a battle. Parenting is not for cowards. Unfortunately, the only training that most of us have is what we saw in our parents, and they did the best they could. So preparation is needed. Say peculiarity. What that means is <laughs> you need to accept and appreciate that every arrow you have is different. No arrow. God created us to be originals, not copies. But most of us die copies. We try and be like everybody else. And so don't treat all of your children the same way. Some will excel academically and others won't. Some will study a month in advance and the other will study the night before and they both get A's. <laughs> and you try to make the one who gets to study the night before like the one that did a month in advance, you're going to have conflict. Peculiarity. Every arrow is different. Your children are unique. There's no one person in the entire world, 8 billion people in the world, not one person who's exactly like you. Purposefully direct your child towards intentional target, an intentional target. You can have an arrow and just 
Fling it up in the air. I used to think that. Just bring them to church. Just let them read the Bible. Pray with them. No, you got to. said, when you walk in the way, tell them about God. When you're getting ready to go to bed, tell them about God. When they ask you why you're so blessed, tell them about God. You have to be intentional, purposely direct the arrow to the target. Train up a child in the way that he should go. Every child has a particular bent, a propensity, a proclivity. Every child, you need to, uh, what is your child's bent? What are they good at? And then direct them towards that in the Lord. Precaution is needed to handle the arrow. You just don't put weapons anywhere. They don't just leave your kids in the hood. All right, make it the best way you can. I know it'll be all right. No, no. Precaution is needed. You need to know what your children are doing on the Internet. You need to know what they're talking about on the telephone. My parents just say, this is my house. What do you mean? I live here. What are you talking about? This is your house. I live here. Now I understand. I wasn't paying no bills. I wasn't putting no food on the table. I didn't buy a single stitch of clothes I was wearing. Precaution is needed. The Bible talks about fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath. Don't push your children beyond the point of obedience by being overly uh, demanding. Prioritizing is needed. We're almost done. We need to make our families our priorities, not what you're driving, where you work, how much money you have in account, how much uh, 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 augmented surgery you can get. One of the things that I was growing up, we had adults. People don't want to grow up. Everybody want to be young, and it's about me. It's, it's about my, living my best world. What about your children? What about your children? They are your legacy. When, you're, when, you're, you, when all those things you can't, oh, right, let me run. Protection is needed. The Bible says the devil is like a roaring lion. We'll fight somebody. If we think somebody's molesting our child, I want you to know every time your child goes to school and they're taught value clarification that your sexual preference is your preference, that's abuse. We've allowed the world to poison our children's mind. And because we just want to go along to get along, we don't say nothing. God didn't call you to be your, your child's pal, but your child's parent. Patient is needed to maximize the benefit of each arrow. You just don't fire randomly. You got to stretch. I don't know how they do it, but archers, you know what I'm saying? Patience is needed. What that means is you need to allow your son and daughter to pay, to, to, to make mistakes and to learn from them. Stop rescuing your children and doing their homework and making sure. No, 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 no. Getting them up because they, if they were going to an amusement park or somewhere with their friends, you don't have to use no alarm clock. Please. They're fussing at you. You're still in bed. You know I got to go. Wait a minute, it's three hours before here. I don't want to be late. We make time for what's important to us. And finally, planning for the release, to release the arrow at the proper time is needed. Our youngest son just moved out at 26. It was time. <laughs> Hallelujah! 
child doesn't have to leave home at the same time. But sometimes if a child stays too long, they will be a child forever. So don't say, when you're 18 and, and, and I don't have to, and you, you're getting out. An 18-year-old may not be ready. And as long as they're living under the, the rules of the, your home, it's all right. But when that joker thinks that they can run things, like they're the father in, a, in charge of something, no. And so you need to, the, the greatest gift that a husband and wife can give to their children is to allow them see, to see their parents loving each other. And the greatest gift that your children can give to you is to leave the nest and succeed. God didn't say that your children shall cling unto you, but you should cling unto your spouse. Amen. That's the only permanent relationship that God ever espouses in the word of God. So patience is needed. You need to know when it's time. My parents had to ask me. I wasn't, I wasn't trying to leave. I was enjoying being home. Please. I left when I got married. Otherwise, I might still be living at home. <laughs> Amen. I shared with you that for the first 65 years of my life, would you stand? I had never seen a picture of my father. I knew his name. I knew a few things about him. And whenever someone would bring up the topic about fatherhood, relationships with fathers, I always felt an emptiness. I grew up in a home with a domineering women. Domineering women, generations of women who ran the show and were miserable because they had to run the show. Had weak, well-intended husbands, but husbands who were really taught that all they needed to do was bring the money home, but they didn't have to be involved with the children. On January 1st, 2019, I got a text message from my oldest son, the one I thought was, you know, demon-possessed. He said, Dad, I have a surprise for you. So I went on Ancestry.com. Thank you, Sister Renee. And there he was, a picture of my father. I don't ever have to see that picture again. That chapter in my life that the devil kept writing on, has now been closed. Amen. I want you to understand something, church, that you have a heavenly father who not only created you in his own image, but he has designed. He said, I know my thoughts towards you. I have a purpose for you. I want you to prosper, but when you go against my plan, my design, 
There's no blessing there. There's no blessing. So my challenge to you is not to allow the world to steal your identity. That's already been determined by God. But I want you to rediscover it in the word of God. Let's pray. Father.